Good morning, Lighthouse family. Is it a beautiful morning or what, Jack? Thank you. Want a shout out to uh, Shelly, our worship leader who's out in the desert, not eating much and sweating a lot. So, uh, Shelly, we miss you. And let's just worship. Your love, oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your faithfulness is like the mighty mountain. And your justice flows like the ocean's tides. Okay, we have words now, so let's all sing on this. Your love, oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Like the mighty mountain, and your justice flows like the ocean's tide. Way to start off the morning. Okay, this next song, I'm going to need some help on this. 
at a certain part here, if you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify, and if you guys just raise your hands with me on the testify part, okay? Good song, the words really mean something. been walking the same old road for miles and miles if you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies if you're trying to fill the same old holes inside now there's a better life there's a better life if you got pain he's a pain taker if you feel lost all searching for the light of day in the dead of night we've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight we've all run to things we know that just ain't right now there's a better life there's a better life if you got pain Okay, now, struggle through that first part, so we're going to get this one good here. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it. Okay, here we go. Somebody testify, testify, if you believe it, if you receive it, if you can't feel it, somebody testify. Here we go. You believe it, you receive it, you can feel it. Somebody testify, testify. You believe it, you receive it, you can feel it. Somebody testify, testify. You got pain, he's a pain taker. You feel a struggle that song I love the words but it was a struggle <laughs> the easiest ones you know you just go dang that was a hard song here we go
grateful for the things you've done my love and savior precious jesus Father, we are so grateful that you would just hold your arms out and hold us in the times when it's hardest. The times when we feel those darkest moments and we feel all alone, Lord, we are so grateful that we can come and feel your arms wrap around us. For all those who are here this day who've had to reach out for those arms this week, Father, we pray your blessings upon them. May you be with them. May they feel and know you even stronger today than yesterday and even stronger tomorrow. Father, we ask this day as we gather in this place and give glory to your son that you would open our hearts to the message of your word, that our pastor would speak your message to us and that we would take it and share it with a world that needs to know that Jesus is the savior of this world. And it's in those arms of love that we can rest no matter what we're going through. And for all of those things, God, and for everybody who's here, we are so grateful. 
We pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Man, I tell you, you drop one little y'all in a message last week, and you guys run with it. Glenn, thank you so much for stepping up today. Uh, good morning. How are you guys? Looks like half of us are on vacation right now, which is fine. I'm glad that you're here, and for those of you who are joining us at home, really, really grateful that you're with us. Uh, one thing I want to let you know about, and that is that we are going to have our first of our three summer uh, beach bonfires this Friday night from 4 p.m. till 9 p.m. down at B Street in Newport Beach. I hope that you guys will join us. This isn't just for families. This isn't just for those of you who are in youth or young adults. This is for our whole church family. It's a time just to get to hang out together, get to do community together, have some fun. If you have friends that you've been thinking about inviting to church but you didn't really want to invite them to church, well then invite them to the beach, right? And get to know your church family. So that's coming up on this Friday. I hope you'll join us. With that, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8, because we, after taking a couple of weeks looking at how we understand this, why we can trust this, and how we can read this without misinterpreting it, we are diving back into the Gospel of John. And this is actually one of my very favorite stories recorded in the Gospels. It's a powerful story uh, of Jesus being put on the spot being told, we want you to make a judgment, and he flipping it and redeeming it in such a beautiful way. And so I'm looking forward to diving into that. But before we do that, I just want to address again something I brought up a couple of weeks ago. And that is, actually, Kathy, would you close that window right there? Because I've got a reflection off of somebody's car, and there's like shiny object going on for me. And so my brain is like out there right now. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I call on one of the shortest people in the room to close the window. I appreciate your help. All the ADHD people in the room appreciate your help right now. Maybe it's just me. Um, so, before we dive into John's gospel and into this particular story, I want to remind us something that my um, translation and many of yours probably points out, and that is right before chapter 7, verse 53, it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't have John 7:53 through 8:11. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. And instead, this is probably a story that was circulating around the time of, of John writing his gospel. It was one of the stories that was being passed within the community of Christ, but it was probably not written down by John. Or if it was, it wasn't included in this particular place. And we know this, A, because we can look back at the earliest manuscripts and it's not there, but B, because when you read John chapter 7 and then you go to the second half of John chapter 8, it's a complete thought. It's all taking place at the same place during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this story is almost shoehorned into the middle of it like it's an interruption. So how are we to take that? How should we approach this? We're going to take the same posture as many of the theologians do, which is to say we're going to probably assume that John did not originally write this and place this in his gospel at this place. However, it's not a story that was made up. It was a story that was contemporary to John and was in the community of Christ. But most importantly for us, most importantly for us, is the fact that this story in no way contradicts any aspect of Jesus's character, in no way whatsoever. Even if John didn't write it, even if he didn't intend for it to be in his gospel, 
the way that Jesus responds to this group of self-righteous Jews and the woman that they drag before him demanding that he give an account or give a judgment on her, the way he responds to both of them is utterly consistent with how Jesus responds all throughout all four of the Gospels with people who are both prideful and people who are broken. And so the reason why we are still going to read it, study it, unpack it, and say, how can we apply this to our lives, is because this is absolutely a beautiful picture of how Jesus responded to everybody who is imperfect, which is pretty much everybody he came in contact with. So that is why we are going to continue to study it, despite the caveat that it probably wasn't original to John's gospel. With that intro, let's go ahead and read John chapter 8, verses 1. So they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses it commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. All right, so what's going on here? We know that Jesus' popularity was beginning to rise amongst the people there in Jerusalem. We know this because even before he got there, during the Feast of Tabernacles, people were whispering and talking about him. Where is he? Is he going to have another interaction with the, the, the Pharisees? You know, what's going to happen? So Jesus' popularity is on the rise, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were not big fans of Jesus because he challenged the status quo. He challenged the things that they assumed that helped them kind of maintain a tenuous grip on power and control in that community. And Jesus challenged that. And often, more often than not, his harshest words were leveled at them, the ones who, who felt that they were the arbiters of what was truth in God's word. And so they weren't big fans of Jesus. And so when this woman gets caught having interactions with someone that is not her husband, they see in it an opportunity. And here's, here's something that really makes me sad about this story. The religious crowd does not come with hearts that have any reflection of God's heart. How do I know that? Because they've caught a woman in sin. And rather than see her and the person that she was obviously with, because, if you, you know, she wasn't by herself. So the, the fact that they bring her by herself and they parade her through the streets of Jerusalem, drag her up to the temple courts, stick her in front of Jesus, in front of a whole crowd, and basically 
air her dirty laundry in front of everybody and say, now you've got to give a judgment on how we should respond to her in order to trap her shows me that they are not about the heart of God because the heart of God is about restoration of hurting people. About a restoration back into relationship and that's not how they are treating this woman. In fact, I don't even think they see her as a woman or as an image bearer of God. To them, this person is simply a pawn in a game of chess against Jesus. She is just the bait that they are going to use to try to trap Jesus with his words. If they really cared about her, they wouldn't be doing this publicly, and she wouldn't be brought alone. And they wouldn't air her dirty laundry in front of everybody, so they are not coming with humble hearts. They are not loving in any shape or form. They are using this woman's pain for their own personal gain, and quite honestly, it's despicable. And so they dragged this woman before Jesus. They made her stand before the entire group of people that had gathered around Jesus there in the temple courts, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. His words will be used against him in the court of public opinion, potentially even in a court of law. Now, before we look at how Jesus responds, I want you to simply put yourself in his sandals and consider how you might have responded. If you were put on the spot and asked to give an answer. And maybe it's not this particular topic, but maybe it's one of the very many socially hot-button topics that are out there. And somebody comes up to you with energy in their voice and says, give your, what what do you think? How should we respond? What's the, what would Jesus say to do? How would you respond? Would you clam up? Would you say something, anything? Because they're demanding an answer, and so whatever half-baked thought comes first, that's what you blurt out. Dee and I would, for sure. That's why he's my friend. I'm not alone. Would Would you go along with what is obviously the public sentiment just to get along? How would you respond? I'm not joking when I say that if I found myself in Jesus' position and people are looking to me and there's some element of, wow, this is somebody that we can really learn from and trust, so what is your take on it? I would feel compelled to give an answer, even if it wasn't fully thought out. And my guess is I would probably speak before I think fully. And I'd probably, in hindsight, wish I hadn't done that. But my guess is that's how I would respond. If for no other reason that people are looking to me, they expect something of me, and I don't want to let them down. Stinking people pleaser in me. And if, and this is a big if, if I recognized in the moment the way that they were using this person's pain for their own gain, treating her not as a human being, but as bait in a trap, I would probably come with energy. I'd probably match their energy. Because it would be upsetting to me how they are sinning against this woman and honestly sinning against the heart of God 
by using the law as something to beat her over the head with and potentially trap Jesus in. So I'd probably come with energy. So let's take a look now at how Jesus chooses to respond because he doesn't respond in either of those ways. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So he's got a crowd of people that have come to hear him teach. He's got an angry, self-righteous crowd of people who have brought a woman who real time has gotten caught and they're demanding an answer. And Jesus' response is not to give them an answer. Rather, it's to kneel down on the ground and begin to write in the dirt. Now, interesting fun fact, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is ever recorded as writing anything down. We don't know what he wrote. We're not told in this story. Now, granted, because Christians have always tried to find meaning in everything, there's conjecture about what he says, but we don't know. We don't know what he was writing. But what we do know is that Jesus did not give in to the urge to give an answer immediately. And the crowd's waiting. And they're going, what is he doing? And, and of course, the, the crowd of spiritually self-righteous people who have dragged this woman before him are not willing to let him off the hook. They've set the trap. They've baited the trap. They are going to to force him to step in it. So they keep at him. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, Jesus finally straightened up. He stood up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the dirt of the ground. In other words, you know what, guys? You caught her. She's guilty. So I tell you what, whichever one of you has never broken the law of Moses, you go ahead and you be the first to throw a stone. Go ahead. And then he kneels back down. And and I love this because what Jesus does is he throws a piece of truth out there that, that exposes them. Rather than the focus being on her, he flips the focus around to them and says, I tell you what, if you can stand before God and say, I am absolutely righteous, then you throw the stone. and We'll all follow suit. And then, like a stone thrown into a placid pond, that initial kerplunk, the ripples begin to go out, and he doesn't add more to it. He doesn't bring energy. He's not yelling to match their energy. He just lets it simmer as the ripples begin to go through the crowd and as as the fervor, the energy, the anger, the self-righteous disgust at this woman begins to dissipate. They begin to listen to his words, and they realize, well, dang, that's not me. I know I've screwed up. And beginning with, and this is really interesting, beginning with the oldest in the crowd, they begin to drop their stones and they turn around and they walk away. And finally, the young, who who are typically the ones who are are the most self-confident in their youth and their zeal. They're the last to go, but finally everybody has walked away leaving just Jesus and this woman. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And when it's only him and her, he stands up and he asks her woman. And this isn't a derogatory woman. He even responds, he refers to his mom this way. This is a way that he would normally interact with women in that day. Woman, 
who, who are they? Where are they? Has nobody condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Something interesting about this story dawned on me a couple of years ago. And that is that there was actually somebody in the crowd who, according to Jesus' parameters, had the right to throw the first stone. Jesus. He was without sin. He absolutely could have thrown the first stone. And yet he chose not to. He had the right to condemn her. And if he had done so, if he had picked up a stone and thrown it at the woman, then you better believe that the feeding frenzy would be on. They would have torn that woman apart until there was nothing left. And I believe I would suggest to you that in that moment, in that decision, that's the entire gospel wrapped up in a, in a moment. Jesus, the only one with the right to judge us and condemn us, does not choose to do so, but instead gives us grace, which is not earned. In that moment, he shows to her and to us the heart of our God. Because there's a, every single one of us is well aware of the ways in which we don't measure up to God, right? God's righteous standard. God expects this. We know that we are imperfect. And there are many of us, probably some of you who are listening to me online right now, you are well aware of the fact that you don't measure up to God's righteous standard. And some of you may be holding God at arm's length going, hold on, just give me a little bit of time. I'll clean myself up. I will earn the right to be called your son or your daughter. And that's not how the gospel works. If it worked according to you have to earn it, then this woman would be dead. And so would the rest of us because we have all sinned. We have all fallen woefully short of God's righteous standard. But instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us grace. He did to this woman and he has for every other person in here. And guys, let's be honest. We are not Christ followers. We don't call ourselves Christians, little Christs, because we've got it all together. We are Christ followers because we are the first to admit that we are sinners desperately needed, in need of a Savior. That we have fallen short. And in this moment, in this decision not to throw a stone, not to condemn her, Jesus shows the heart of our God to us and every other person who is caught in their sin. And, and I want to talk today. I mean, that's, that's, that's the gist of this. But what I really want to do today is I want to look at the way that Jesus interacts with sinful people because they're all throughout the Gospels. Even if this particular story is not original to John, the way that Jesus deals with this woman and the way that he deals with the self-righteous crowd is absolutely consistent with how he deals with people all throughout. And that's this. He continually is confronted with imperfect, sinful people. And rather than condemning them, rather than writing them off, Rather than simply ignoring them and walking away from them and treating them like they don't matter, he seeks to restore them 
back into relationship with God. That is always his goal. His goal is never to win an argument. His goal is always to restore back into relationship. He came to seek and save those who were up to their eyeballs in sin, in rebellion, in worldliness, who, were, who reeked of the pigsty. And we're, we are presented with two examples of people like that. You have the example of the self-righteous crowd who absolutely reek of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and, and, and a sense of, I can do it by my own strength. I guess today we would call that moralism. This idea that I can earn God, my standing with God by being a good person. They stink of the world, and yet they can't smell their own stench because they're so focused on this woman's stench. And then you've got this woman who's been caught in the act, I mean, guilty as charged. You don't even need to take it to court. And she knows she's guilty, and she's overcome by her brokenness. And Jesus is seeking to restore her as well. And to both parties, the self-righteous and the shamed, he leads with the same thing, grace and truth. Not one or the other, both. Grace and truth. But here's the beautiful thing about our Lord. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our circumstances better than we understand them ourselves. And so even though he gives us the same thing, regardless of where we happen to be on the continuum of pride or shame, he provides us with the same thing, grace and truth, but not in the same amounts. This is not one size fits all. I mean, let's take the woman for a moment. Here is a woman who knows that she's guilty. She knows she deserves to be stoned to death. She knows that she is a hair's breadth. She is a one-syllable answer from Jesus away from being dead. Jesus didn't need to smack her upside the head with truth. He didn't need to rub her nose in it, and he chooses not to. He had the right to. He could have lectured, even after the crowds left, he could have lectured this woman about her sinfulness. He chooses not to. He could have rubbed her nose in it. He chooses not to. Where are the crowds? They're not here? Then neither do I condemn you. But even in that, even in providing grace to this woman, he doesn't just leave it at that. He then comes after this heaping helping of grace. He comes and he reminds her, but now go lead your life of sin. So there's still truth. He just didn't lead with it because she didn't need it. She was already broken. The soil of her heart was already tilled up enough that he could plant the seeds of truth and they could find purchase. What she needed more than anything was grace and he gave it to her. But I would suggest that the, the self-righteous crowds also needed grace and truth, but they needed it in very opposite amounts. Jesus couldn't just ignore their bad behavior. 
He loved them too much to do that. And if he had ignored them, we might consider that grace. I would call that judgment because he would have been leaving self-righteous people to bask in their self-righteousness and they would have been far from the heart of God. And he was not about that. He was about restoring people back into relationship with God. And so what they needed more than anything before he could plant the kernels of eternal life in their heart. They needed the the hardened topsoil of their hard hearts to be tilled. And to do that, he pierced them with with, with perhaps a painful truth. You who's without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. But I will suggest to you that even though that is a painful two-by-four of truth upside the head of prideful people, The delivery that he brought it was so different from how we tend to present truth to hard-hearted people. Because let's be honest, typically when we see somebody acting a fool, somebody who is so arrogant in their their self-righteousness that they can't see how badly they stink or they can't smell the worldliness upon them. Our tendency is to go after them with strength. If we catch them in their hypocrisy, our tendency is to want to shove their face in it publicly. We do it on social media all the time. And in so doing, we end up pushing people further away from the kingdom of God than drawing them near. It's not loving. It's not helpful and it's not the heart of our our Lord God. It's not what Jesus modeled because Jesus models truth with grace and gentleness. He simply puts, he, he flips the lens around from this woman to them. If you're without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone and then he lets them come to the self discovery that they have absolutely no moral high ground to be holding stones and be throwing it at other people. He lets them discover because there's always more power in the discovery than in the telling. I can tell my son a hundred times something. When he discovers it for himself, it will find purchase in his heart. Jesus left space for the discovery rather than browbeating them, shaming them, using truth like stones and pummeling them into submission. That wasn't his approach. It wouldn't have worked. Instead, he lets them discover it for themselves. And guys, I simply want to remind us, because more often than not, I'm seeing that we are getting into conversations on social media, and I am am absolutely part of this, so I'm speaking to myself here, okay? Our desire would be that people would represent the heart of God and the values of our king would be front and center, but we don't tend to approach it in ways that cultivate relationship, we tend to approach it in ways of we are trying to win in an argument and it's a win-lose kind of thing. And in so doing, we're doing incredible damage to our witness, but we are also pushing people further away from the kingdom of God. Because rather than giving space for people to recognize maybe their own hypocrisy. We try to shove their face in it. And it pushes them further away. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. 
Um, truth and grace. We all need it. And, and there's, there's this beautiful passage that uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about this. Because here's the thing. You might be absolutely and utterly right. You might be absolutely and utterly right that you recognize somebody's hypocrisy. Somebody is wrong. They've taken a wrong position. They have been championing something that is absolutely not truthful. And you have the truth. But how you go about sharing it can be, you, you, you can either do great good or you can do great, great harm. Because even if you know the truth, even if you are proven right and the facts, regardless of whether or not they are accepted as facts, prove your point. How you go about articulating that matters. Because if you don't have love for the other person that you're talking to, it'd be best just to keep your mouth shut. This is what Paul says. And we're, we're all very familiar with this because it's the love chapter that we've read at every wedding you've ever been to. So I'm, this is in the message just so we can hear it with fresh ears. If I speak with human eloquence, but I don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. That doesn't sound good. That hurts my ears. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, but if I don't have faith, or, and, and if I have the faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, then I am nothing. The point that Paul is making, the point that Jesus modeled, is that our goal should never be to win the fight. Our goal should never be to be proven right. Our goal should always be to redeem and restore people back into relationship with God. And that requires us to love the other Person. And I would suggest to you, we see grace on display with the woman caught in adultery. We see the truth in the way that he redeems her, and this is now go leave in your, your life of sin. But I would suggest that Jesus also deals with these self righteous Jews with both truth and grace. The truth is obvious. Let you who's without sin cast the first stone. But I would suggest to you that it is utterly grace filled the way he responds to them. He doesn't do it with energy. He does it with humility and gentleness. But he also doesn't simply let them remain convinced of their own superiority. In grace, I mean, imagine if he just let them walk away thinking that they were right. They would have remained far from God. And his desire is to restore them back into relationship with God. So by helping them, walking with them, to be able to see their hypocrisy. It broke the hardness of their hearts enough that they were willing to drop their stone and accept, yeah, I don't have a moral high ground here and walk away. May we never approach any conversation with the goal of simply winning the conversation. Because if, we, if that is our goal, then we will employ any tactic we can Name-calling, raising our voice, shaming, browbeating, mocking. This is the way that the world fights. 
It doesn't feel good when we're on the receiving end. May we not use the same weapons of this world to fight against image bearers that don't even realize how deeply they're loved. Because our God went out of his way to reach them. And as his representatives, we have a responsibility in the way in which we respond to ugly, mean people. I'm telling you, it's important for us to interact with imperfect people. But it's also imperative that we consider the ways in which we do it. And this is where we desperately need the Holy Spirit. This is where we desperately need to give ourselves the same permission that Jesus gave himself. When confronted with an angry mob of people demanding an answer, he didn't feel the need to fill in the empty space with words. He didn't feel the need to talk immediately. He waited. He got down and he, maybe, maybe he was journaling in the dust, right? I don't know. Maybe he was just given some space for them to calm down. That's always a good policy. If you're fighting with your sweetie at 10 p.m., you're tired, she's tired, or he's tired, probably not the best time to try to hash it out. I, for me, that, that's a good time for us to say, hey, I love you. Can we pray real quick? And, and can, we, can we table this till the morning? And I have found time and time again, after 17 years of marriage, we have discovered that when you table it, you come back to it in the morning, it's almost like that, that moment of friction has dissipated and we can actually see the other person as a person and not simply an impediment to getting what we want. Or when I'm feeling frustrated hypothetically at my kids for something, and I'm, I, am, I am seeing red, if I simply let myself speak in that moment, I'm not going to be kind. And it's not going to be redemptive. And I am going to be trying to force feed my perspective down my children's throats. And quite honestly, it's going to push them further away, not closer to the heart that I want to see shaped in them. Because I will be modeling the wrong heart. And I've done that more times than I can count. I don't want to keep doing it. And this is where we desperately need the Holy Spirit to help us. We need to allow ourselves freedom to give ourselves space to prayerfully go, God, how would you have me respond here? Because again, our desire is not to speak out of our flesh, which has a tendency to fight the way that the world fights, but to speak out of the Spirit so that we would represent the heart of our God accurately. And if it's condemning, if it tears someone down in, in ways that are not redemptive, probably not from the heart of our God. Maybe what you need is to give yourself the freedom not to speak, not to respond immediately, to, to sit on it. Maybe even do a little journaling of your own. Pray, God, how would you have me to respond? And only after you have clear leading from the Lord do you write anything, do you respond in any way. And, and guys, if it's an argument that is between you and another person, probably best not do it on social media. It's not the best. That's like trying to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody over the loudspeaker at your supermarket. Do you want to be that publicly on display? And a lot of us are doing it because it's the easiest, lowest hanging way of doing these kind of conversations. But it is not effective. 
you will always have people chirping in from the sidelines who love to tear things down. And guys, I'm speaking to myself here as well. One more thing I want to point out this morning. And that's the way in which this group of people were willing People who represented supposedly the heart of God were willing to use this woman's shame for their own gain. They were willing to use her not as a human being, but as bait in a trap to try to catch Jesus and score political points or score social points. Again, think about the words of that passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that we just read. If you're right, but you don't have love, then shut your mouth, please. For the sake of the gospel, just stop talking. Because you can have it absolutely right. And people who already agree with you are going to pat you on the back and give you thumbs up when you use somebody else stumbling as, an ex as a way to point and see, I told you. They're idiots. And all that does is perpetuate this distance between us and them. And people who already agree with you, they're going to pat you on the back and tell you you're doing great. But you're pushing everybody else further away. And that is not the heart of our God. Again, I will reiterate. The goal is not to win the fight. The goal is not to be made right. The goal is to restore people into relationship with God. How we do that matters. I invite the worship team to come forward, but I have one last thought, and that's this. Do not for a moment think that this conversation is just about imperfect people out there as if we are the only people on this planet who have it together. Guys, we are just as imperfect, just as flawed, just as desperately in need of grace and truth as anybody else is. And the question that we need to contemplate this morning is in the areas of your life where you struggle, the things that perhaps you're blind to because it's way easier to look at somebody else's sin, right, than to look at your own, or in the areas that you are well aware of the fact that you do not measure up, and it brings you shame, and you hide in the shadow areas of your life, and the enemy, like a prowling lion, continues to whisper in your ear, if anybody knew about this, they'd be disgusted and they wouldn't want anything to do with you. So you keep hiding, and the enemy keeps using it as a way to isolate you. If, the, if our Father God today wanted to speak to you, how much grace and how much truth would he need to use? Really, the answer to that question is found right in here, in your heart. Because if your heart is, is soft and open and humble and receptive to what he wants to say, then he can shower you with grace. And those kernels of truth will find purchase and they will produce life in you. But if your heart is hardened or, or you're pridefully focused on other people so much that you're blind to your own stuff, then he's going to need to till your heart before he can ever plant anything that will produce anything in your heart. And that's painful. And I, for one, would like to, to be able to have God shower me with grace. Because I've learned long ago that I really don't like 
the sting of a well-deserved spanking. May we not be resistant to God's still small voice so that he doesn't have to till our hearts with truth. May we invite him to use us as people who are constantly looking at others who are also imperfect as image bearers of God. That we don't focus on their imperfection, we rather we focus on the fact that they are loved by him. They're prodigal children who may smell of the pigsty, but they're still prodigal children. And God sent Jesus to die for them as well. And may we be the kind of people who say, here I am, God, help yourself to my life, that I would reflect your heart in my interactions. Holy Spirit, give me wisdom in the way that I speak to others who disagree with me, to others who irritate me, to others who smell so badly of this world that I want nothing to do with them. And God, you died for them as well. So help yourself to my life that I might reflect your heart. And if that begins by looking at me, then so be it. Search me and know me. Know my innermost thoughts. Show me if there's anything that is contrary to your heart so that you can remove that so that I might be soil that can produce the fruit of the Spirit, love for unlovable people, joy in the midst of all circumstances, peace despite what is going on in the world around me, patience with people who really make me frustrated, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Father God, produce in me the kind of fruit that, that will nourish the world that I might not be an impediment to others coming to you, the only one who can save them. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship our God together. In the secret, in the quiet place, My deepest heart I know In the stillness, in the quiet hour I wait only for you
God listens to our hearts and not our voices. That's right. All styles make God smile. <laughs> All styles make God smile. I look forward to you rapping next week, Bill. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I love you guys so much. And by the way, I know there's a few of you uh, at home right now, and I'm probably missing some of you, but Tony... Uh, just had surgery, and Tony, we are praying for you, your rapid recovery. We are so glad you're still with us. Um, I also know that Tony's here. Of course you are. Of course you are. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. That was fast surgery. Okay, I know that was. So I just, and by the way, while Tony's coming up here, Pablo, we are praying for you. Pablo uh, has had a lung transplant. He is now needing a, another lung because one of them is is failing on him. So, Pablo, we are praying on Tuesday when they go in and decide whether you can get that. We're praying for you, for your wife, for your unborn son. We are praying for you right now. Uh, He's over there. Actually, let me do that. Let me let me pray for Pablo before um, I, I, I. Yeah, Father God, we lift Pablo up to you. We are so grateful for the ways that you have guided. This whole process, we are thankful that there, are, there is the ability to replace someone's lung. And we pray, Father, for, the, the, for your image bearer that will provide that lung for him. God, we ask that you would have your hand upon him. We, we pray that you would be in the conversation with the, the, the board that's going to decide whether or not to approve it. We pray that they would. We lift up him and Catherine and little Marcello that's, that's still in process of, of being prepared to be able to, to be in the light of day. We, we lift your hands upon the Papano family. Jesus, in your name, amen. All right. Yeah, get, get up. What are you? Of course you are. Of course you are. All right, can, can I just, this, this, he's going to hate that I do this, but I have to brag on this man because, brag on him. yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm doing exactly what you asked me not to do, which is, but that's exactly what they just did too, so I'm just following their example. Thursday, Jeff and I are over in the offices. The fact that we are there isn't a big deal, but the fact that we were there together on a Thursday when we're typically all over the city doing stuff was kind of amazing in and of itself. Tony walks in at 10.23. I know that because I looked at the clock at that moment when he walked in. He comes in asking, hey, what's going on with this lady's house over here? I hear she needs some help fixing something. We talk for 10 minutes about that. As he's about to leave, my buddy here goes, oh, by the way, um, pray for me. I, I, I have some tumors that are needing to be removed. Um, and, and the doctor says I need to get this done. Uh, and, and, and I told, and he, this is Tony talking, I told the doctors that I have some stuff I need to get done, so can we push this off until July? Because quite honestly, I, I, I want to serve these people, and that's what I live for. And I'm thinking, if Karen heard you say that, she'd be... <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, I know, I know you're willing to live for that, but are you willing to die for that, was the thought that flew through my mind in that moment. And apparently your doctor agreed, because your doctor said, oh no, Tony, this is something where I'm going to make a window to do the surgery, because this is life-threatening. And then Tony says this, and this is the reason why I've asked my brother to come up here. Tony says, I don't want anybody, regardless of what happens, regardless of whether I never wake up from this anesthesia, I don't want anybody to doubt God's goodness. Because if I survive this, I get to keep serving God. And if I die, I get to go be with Jesus. So regardless of how it plays out, I'm blessed. And so just please, please, don't remember me, remember God. That, 
that's the lifestyle. That is the approach to living that I want to model. I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that I, that, that I still get to hug you. I'm grateful that God kept you with us. It's a selfish prayer. That's what we were praying, selfishly. But I am so grateful for the ways that you have modeled this. Here's my life. Here's everything that is dear to me. Use it how you wish. May we all take that approach as we go into our lives, as we interact with our families, as we do the things he's given us to do. May we simply table our life and say, God, it's all yours. We'd lay it down as an act of worship. If you want to bless the world and bless me through it, so be it. And if you want to use my life as an illustration for others, even in my death, if that's where you want to lead me, I'm willing to follow because I trust you more than I fear anything that can happen to me. May we, Father God, I'm grateful that Tony's here with me. I'm grateful for the doctors who did the surgery. I'm grateful for the heart, that, it, that, that heart of stone has been removed and there is a heart of flesh in here that is 100% focused on you. And I pray the same for each of us, that you would replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that beat to the cadence of your heart so that when people come in contact with us, we reflect your heart to a skeptical world. They will question our words. They will question our motives, but they cannot question our love when it is so consistent. May we be the kind of people who reflect your heart in any and every situation. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Of course you may. Let me, let me, let's, it's going to make you sound country, but. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. When they knocked me out under the general anesthetic, I got a vision. And you all know the story about when Jesus was wandering around doing the miracles. He planted seeds of faith in a lot of people. Then he got invited to somebody's house, and he went in. And those people that had that seed of faith, they felt the love of Jesus Christ for their crippled friend, sick friend. And they said, we want love him so much, we want to bring his situation to Jesus because we believe him like all of you do. And the prayers, the vision he gave me, I saw all your faces. Under anesthetic, I saw all your faces. And you were carrying me and lowering me from the roof. And God said, do you want to be healed? And I said, yes. And he said, get up. And 45 minutes later, I did. No pain medication, not flat on my back. I don't feel sick at all. Jesus, in his word, Paul says, here's the definition of faith. Faith is the evidence of something hoped for. Your faith hoped for a healing. He also said, your faith is the substance of something not seen. Can you see me? 
Can you feel me? It's a product of your faith. I thank God for you. He loves every one of you so much. He heard your prayers. He hears all of your prayers. To him be the glory forever and ever. I love you. I love you all. Thank you for loving me so much. Amen. <laughs> all right, you better. Have a wonderful week. Hopefully I'll see you on Friday at the beach. Thank you.